This week, we turn to Donna Haraway's version of posthumanism. As we saw in our last lecture, Lyotard ended up in a profoundly pessimistic place when he conceived of the inhuman. Haraway's work, on the other hand, although not unthinkingly optimistic, discerns many more possibilities, trajectories and alternatives when it comes to reframing our contemporary relationship to technology. For example, in her most recent work, Staying with the Trouble, making kin in the Cthulhu scene, she questions the seductive power of easy techno fixes for tackling ecological collapse. However, this does not mean we should do nothing. Haraway, and I think this distinguishes her work from many of the thinkers labelled postmodernists, retains a degree of enlightenment optimism. It is never too late to make the world a better place. All we really need to do is do it. Thus, it is fair to say that Haraway has a more positive outlook on post-human. We should bear some caution around the term post-humanism. Haraway retains some scepticism about the term post-humanism in a not-too-dissimilar way that existentialists and post-structuralists were not satisfied with their own monikers. Having said that, it would be impossible to conceptualise what post-humanism means without reference to Haraway's notion of the cyborg, nor her broader philosophical project. In this lecture, I will begin by recounting some of Haraway's background and intellectual context, which I think is very instructive for helping us understand Haraway's theories. I will then proceed to explain the origin of her own philosophical method, especially as it merges in her challenge to what she deems to be thinly objective accounts of scientific knowledge. From there, I will then explain the alternative relational ontology which Haraway develops as a curative to more restrictive modes of scientific and technological objectivity. The first thing we should note about Donna Haraway is that she is a scientist. She received a PhD in cell biology from Yale University in 1972. This gives her work, I think at least, a more authoritative grounding, especially with regard to questions of science and technology. By her own admission, this does not necessarily mean that she was a good scientist. As she herself says, she was never really good in the lab. Still, it does mean she has a more solid grounding than, say, a Deleuze, a Derrida or a Foucault when they are holding forth on science and technology. But to suggest Haraway is valuable just because she is a scientist would also be to do her a huge intellectual disservice. She is that and more. As such, her work willfully, even joyously, transcends disciplinary classification. At the core, Haraway is a thinker who synthesises biology and feminism. You might think of this as an odd combination, but not really. After all, a huge question for feminism is reproduction and reproductive rights. In the 1970s, Haraway was drawn to movements in radical feminism, but also radical science especially scientists who resisted having their work conceived as subordinate to the interests of corporate capitalism. A central guided concern of Haraway's work is the ways in which a feminist socialist science is thinkable. Here we can see Haraway's work as an alternative to Lyotard's account of the inhuman as hopelessly lost to technoscience, where Lyotard saw science as increasingly legitimated by the logic of development, Haraway sees room for a radical reconception of science, a reconception which would be hugely valuable for contesting the logic of development. To understand Haraway's philosophy, it is useful to understand the development of her intellectual background. In Haraway's own words, she grew up in Denver, 
in a white middle-class neighbourhood, but it was her Catholicism which profoundly shaped her intellectual development. What she took from Catholicism was its materiality. Catholicism, while a dominant spiritual tradition, does have its material side. Think of the crucifixion. Haraway cast herself as a very pious young girl, attracted to the colour, narrative and rituals of the saints. As she says, I ate and drank a sensual Catholicism. In a way, Haraway is a Nietzschean, albeit a Catholic Nietzschean. The sacraments of Catholicism shaped her intellectual development because it provided her with an appreciation of material and sensual life. And this in turn gave Haraway her love of life, her love of biology. Her Catholicism also gave her a desire to express the human, the all-to-human, as both meaning-making and biological beings. The idea she takes from Catholicism is the idea of a, a word-made flesh, an important notion in Catholic theology because it describes the point where God or spirit becomes incarnated in human form, Christ. That is, God becomes human and is therefore a vulnerable, fleshy and mortal being. This theological tradition offered Haraway, as she puts it, an alternative structure of effect. Haraway saw biology as at once discourse linguistic and fundamentally entwined with the material world. She underlines this point when talking about the undergraduate course she studied from 1962 to 1966, when she triple majored in philosophy, literature and zoology. Haraway regarded all these as branches of the same subject. This embrace of interdisciplinarity, as well as her embrace of discourse and materiality, separated Haraway from other forms of contemporary semiotics, such as the post-structuralist work of Roland Barthes. Haraway saw that iteration of post-structuralism as committed to a disjunction of signifier and signified, or word and objective thing. This shows Haraway to be a material pluralist. Her interdisciplinarity is based not only on the intersectional nature of discourse, but of reality itself. Hence, Haraway has written on cyborgs, animals, science, science fiction, anthropology, biotechnology and environmental studies. If there is any common denominator to her work, it is that she is asking, what do we mean when we talk about nature? And how the material world affects cultural meaning and significance. In addition to this melding of biological materiality and cultural signification, Haraway's work was influenced by the activist culture she found at Yale in the late 1960s. There, the broader atmosphere was one of anti-war, anti-racism, anti-patriarchal dissidents. During this time, Haraway also received a Fulbright scholarship to study evolutionary philosophy in Paris, and she went on to complete her doctoral studies in 1972, composing a thesis on the function of metaphor in the study of biology. The subject of study is telling because it shows how Haraway was from the outset trying to construct a sociology of knowledge, or where she was not looking at science as disinterested practice, but as constructed through forms of relations where metaphor shapes experimental practice. While Haraway insists on her scepticism about the term posthumanism, it is nearly impossible to disentangle her thought from posthumanist discourse. Haraway's emphasis on situated knowledge, positionality, the complex intersectionality of humans and non-humans, the entwinement of organic and artificial life, shows that she is a foundational thinker for philosophy. By foundational thinker, I'm not suggesting that Haraway is trying to assert foundations, an enterprise I think she would find quite objectionable. 
but rather the sense that she is trying to inaugurate a new path, a new direction for thinking. We can begin to glimpse this philosophical inauguration in the way she articulates the complex entanglements of discourse and materialism in one of her earliest essays. In The Biological Enterprise, Sex, Mind and Profit from Human Engineering to Sociobiology, as well as other essays in her book Simeon's Cyborgs and Women, Haraway confronts the construction of scientific discourse. In that book, she asks a number of questions. She asks, in what way is scientific discourse constructed? In what way does its construction inform its findings? And how do female and male scientists differ in the types of discourse they adopt? And how does that in turn affect their findings? Haraway focuses her analysis on different scientific accounts of primatology. Her overarching observation is that primatologists tend to masculinize their discourse unquestioningly, particularly where it relates to reproductive competition between males and female primates. This observation in turn reveals how scientists construct a very specific category of nature. There are far-reaching consequences to such a construction of nature. This might not seem immediately apparent, but Haraway's thought is that science, technology and engineering generate forms of life, that is, culture. In this early essay, natural science influences and generates a dominating culture, restricting a richer, more vibrant and truer account of self, body and community. Haraway sees scientific research as far from a neutral arbiter of what counts and does not count as knowledge. Science, scientist, scientific activity poses itself as disinterested. But this is not actually true. Science is a contested domain and its internal struggles have a metaphysical purchase. As Haraway puts it, the struggle for narratives of science is a struggle over the nature of our lives. In The Biological Enterprise, Haraway proceeds to offer a genealogical argument in one sense. By that I mean she looks at different historical periods of scientific discovery to show how, firstly, scientific practice is not ahistorical, and secondly, how transformative scientific practices in turn generate our cultural habits. The latter point specifically relates to how bodies and communities are transformed in the way science feeds into market economics, our cultural imaginary and patriarchy. To show how the inherent transformative nature of science, Haraway focuses on primate biology. She examines two case studies respectively proximate to the First World War and the post-war period, the post-Second World War period. Uh, The purpose is to demonstrate how scientific narratives are mutable and in fact have very different internal cultures, but still cultures which can replicate structures of domination and oppression in different ways. Haraway looks at how the study of biology in the early part of the 20th century focused on organicism. Organicism is the biological idea everything in nature is organic and also that organisms are organised in terms of parts and wholes. This is a relatively old version of biology. For example, think of the circulatory system as a whole and organs as the parts. Or similarly with the nervous system, with the brain as the hierarchical centre which orders all the different nerves and senses throughout the body. Harry wants to show how biology, especially its scientific study, is not immutable but historical. Specifically, Harry discerns a shift from traditional organicism with its emphasis on hierarchical system, evolutionary adaptiveness, physiological cooperation and competitiveness, being replaced by sociobiology, which emphasises flat communication networks, 
computerized technology and a picture of humans as nodes in wider networks of processes, information and genetic assemblages. For Haraway, the life sciences moved from biology to systems theory. But this did not occur in a vacuum. Science and technology develops to meet the need of existing capitalist reproduction, technology and power relations. The first case study Haraway focuses on is that of biologist Robert Mearns Yerkes. Yerkes represents a more traditional organicism. According to Haraway, Yerkes more or less revived biology, or more or less viewed biology in functionalist terms. That is, the organising principle of any biology is adaptation to serve various functional ends. For example, the eye evolves to sense light. What Haraway finds interesting, though, is that Yerkes extends his functional view of biology to an understanding of society at large. The only real word to describe this is as social engineering. Yerkes played a crucial role in the development of personality sciences, which took observations from biology and applied them to the scientific study and management of industry. Industries turned to Yerkes to offer the best scientific advice for improving the functioning of the workplace. If the workplace was organised in a hierarchical and functional way, then this provided the best means for optimising production and outputs. In practice, for Haraway, this meant micromanagement of employees, central control points, strict demarcation of controlling, that is management, and controlled, that is employee, as well as functional specialisation, or more strictly defined roles. Organising all workplaces in this way would inculcate productive habits which would in turn engender the development of rationally managed modern societies. Yerkes' work reveals that the scientific view of nature has significant consequences for the organisation of society at large. Ultimately, Yerkes' organicism was not something limited to factory or office work. Yerkes thought functional biology had analogues in the social world, that is, in entertainment, family, racial relations, sexual relations. Yerkes' biology, applied to labour and social contexts, was geared towards constructing control hierarchies, modelled on individual organisms, for example, with the brain and top, or in a work context with the most suitably qualified rational managers at the helm, who benignly organised the individual parts to create a harmonious whole, with all parts functioning in their fixed and proper place. But what is it that had to be managed and controlled? What was considered so excessive and uncontrollable to the ordering of life in this way? It was life, instinct and sex which needed to be tamed in the common interests of society's organic unity, specifically family, culture and society. Haraway also mentions how Yerkes, through funding from a Rockefeller grant, set up a primate laboratory in New Hampshire. While Yerkes studied a wide variety of primate behaviour, Haraway is more interested in what he left out as what he left in his findings. Haraway suggests that his results overly focused on the dominant subordination relations of a particular male and female primate pair. So, while Yerkes was clearly aware his data presented some unruly findings, for example, the role of dominance and subordination was often reversed. He chose to focus on, according to Haraway, a particular male-female pairing where a dominant-subordinate relation was accentuated. 
and also admitted how prior friendships disrupted relations of dominance and subordination. The association of leadership and biological dominance was considered as natural, when in fact, according to Haraway, and as she says, the sexual market among females was disorderly. Haraway's point is that Yerkes misses out on the importance of social interaction and change. In short, Yerkes left out cultural production among primates. As Yerkes' work was premised on individual organic units, it also neglected the interactional quality of a subject's behaviour. Consequently, the personnel science that he developed was guided by the idea of fitting people into their proper role in a hierarchically organised industry. Anything to the contrary was considered maladaptive, such as sex instinct in life. This had significant consequences. If the unit of analysis was the person, that is, did the person was now to be considered as a neutral object, a vector of data, which meant that a variety of disciplines, psychology, physiology, medicine and anthropology, all started to become intelligible only in the context of the science of management and their offshoots in intelligence testing, advertising and motivational research. In short, Haraway is arguing that different and competing narratives which we find within biology, natural history, anthropology and primatology are founded on at best positional bias and at worst good old-fashioned ideological assumptions. But what ideological assumptions? The ideological assumptions where male-female relations are thought in strict binary terms, that is, for example, man is hunter, woman is nurturer, the science ironically proceeded to reaffirm these somewhat mystical views and in some instances project animal behaviour onto human behaviour. In the field of primatology, this would be in the view that simians are pr- primitive precursors to the human species, from which we can draw conclusions about what humans are. For Haraway, this is neither fair to humans nor fair to simians. The problem is not so much comparing to or relating to forms of animal life, but the method of comparison itself. Haraway provides a second case study to show the masculinist organisation of scientific research in E.O. Wilson's concept of sociobiology. Sociobiology is basically the biological study of groups and populations. By the 1940s and into the post-war period, Yerkes work was starting to become outdated. The shift occurred because life sciences turned to the study of information. Specifically here, Haraway has in mind the work of Crick and Watson on genetics. Conceptionally, information came to be understood in terms of probabilistic models and statistical assemblages. Biological organicism became superseded by genetics, biochemistry, autopoietic, self-assembling viruses, cell population and patterning. Basically, biology was turning to information and systems. Wilson and the work of fellow sociobiologists mark an intensification of the extension of biology to the social and political sphere. Haraway tentatively suggests that the replacement of the organic model with an informational model effectively means biology has ceased to exist, replaced by cybernetic systems. This entails a radical transformation in our self-understanding. With the new emphasis on nature, we find an analogue in how we organise human communities and bodies. Haraway is identifying here what is known as biopolitics. In Haraway's view, biopolitics is a form of social control which emerges from a specific informational and technological world picture. Here we find emphasis placed on things like systems, control, population aggregation, operations research. 
in Haraway's own words, the new life sciences sparked a communications revolution, a re-theorising of natural objects as technological devices, properly understood in terms of mechanisms of production, transfer and storage information. Haraway thinks that this revolution in biological study is extensive, affecting all domains of human life and social relations. This new system maps onto advanced theories of capitalism, amounting to a view of the human as an informational being. Even more, there is a sense humans now conceive themselves in an actuarial sense. Humans allow ourselves to be modelled as if equivalent to insurance assessment practices. The human is, and is only, a quantitative being, calculated purely in terms of risk, cost-benefit analysis, morbidity rates, catastrophic risks, stress testing and benchmarking. Bodies and communities are understood in a technical sense only, as carriers and replicators of strategies for maximising their own reproductive profit. Here Haraway is thinking of the term reproductive in a broad sense. That is, she is asking how societies organise themselves in order to optimally reproduce. Like all forms of social control, this actuarial view of human beings is premised on weakness. For example, a society where populations are reproduced via sexual reproduction is one that cannot be controlled. The best that can be done is managing populations through risk analysis and investment strategies. We might ask whether the purported neutrality, disinterested in objectivity of science, so easily bleeds into the political organisation of society. For Haraway, this is not counterintuitive. It is quite obvious. Models of political theory are biological models. She recalls Thomas Hobbes' view of society as a hierarchical organism. Hobbes' Leviathan was constructed to establish social contracts to ward off the state of nature and a war of all against all. Hobbes' patriarchal state is a biological theory. Hobbes asks what the ideal organisation of society is and what we need to adopt in order to maximise the reproduction of that society. Political strategies therefore equate to body investments, that is, the ability to incorporate oneself into society, which is isomorphic with one's ability to contract and dispose of one's investments, interests and incorporation. From its inception, political discourse is biological discourse. A useful example of Haraway's biopolitical logic is evident in her analysis of Sarah Hurdy's anthropology. In Haraway's essay, The Contest for Primate Nature, Daughters of the Manhunter in the Field, 1960-80, Haraway provides a balanced account of Hurdy's anthropological primatology. On the one hand, she welcomes Hurdy's insertion of female narratives as a legitimate object of scientific study. On the other hand, Haraway remains sceptical of the picture of femaleness which Hardy develops. In Haraway's eyes, Hurdy conceives of female primates as types of rational Machiavels, that is, super-strategic manipulators who engage in sexual encounters purely with a view to maximising their genetic investments. For Haraway, this type of sociobiological narrative contributes to reproducing a systems view of humanity. Really, I think what Haraway's primary objection is uh, that scientists tend to use their models in a top-down or centralised way, thereby missing out on the nuance and specificity of lived experience as it occurs. For example... Hurdy's model of female primates sees the human as nothing more than rational strategizers whose only purpose is capitalizing on genetic investment. 
This in turn generates a political theory of how human society works, namely a purely utilitarian one where social life is a market where investments were made and tested in the only currency that counts. And that for Haraway is genetic increase. Hurdy provides one type of story, and it is narrative which is most important to Haraway. Hurdy's narrative ultimately presents a very restrictive model of what constitutes female experience, namely a view of emancipated females that considers females as possessive, autonomous, proprietorial individuals. It is more the form and method which Haraway finds questionable. That is, the, that experience is classifiable above and beyond the field of occurrence. In other words, the imposition of a scientific model, for example, Hurdy's account of female primates as rational strategizers, provides an ahistorical account of femaleness, one not open to alteration nor contestation, one that is essentially human rather than post-human. Nature is constructed, nature is contested. To argue for either of these propositions is equivalent to a narrative intervention in the way the life sciences construct our view of humanity as something essential, fixed, or as something essentially achieved and complete. In a way, Haraway is asking us to be less innocent. No position is free of determination. No position is innocent and pure of the taints of sociality. This is crucial for Haraway, as it enables us to do two things. It enables us to always think otherwise, elsewhere, and it enables us to demystify any ahistorical accounts of human change. The upshot of Haraway's account of transform humanity is not a repudiation of scientific activity, but rather a more enriched one. For Haraway, in a similar vein to Lyotard, thinks it is not so much scientific activity that is the problem, it is more about the exclusivity of science's claims to legitimacy, classificatory power and objectivity. Haraway does not want to dispense with objectivity. If anything, Haraway is calling for a hyper-objectivity, an objectivity that is socially mediated, where what is considered objective must also be enmeshed in gender, class, biological and cultural determinations. Haraway, as a political activist, is committed to understanding the world as a form of activity. It is important to engage with the stories which science tells about us, but these must also be viewed as knitted through social relations. The overlapping discourse of whichever event is being woven at a particular moment is at stake alongside the ways we are materially constituted. As such, there is no essence to objectivity. This is not to say objectivity does not exist, Roger Haraway is asking us to re- reframe how our knowledge is constructed and narrated. Knowledge, knowing, is never a disembodied or abstract model or set of ideas, but instead is fully immersed in material practices. Again, matter and culture are one, the word made flesh, or in a more technical philosophical term, knowledge of, is a form of imminence rather than transcendence. That is, the world is always a worlding. By worlding, Haraway means the active happening of relationality. Haraway's metaphysics, if we can call it that, is one where its reality is relations all the way down and all the way up. By way of conclusion, from the most basic material processes up to the world of self, culture, economics and politics, Haraway's alternative method is crucial because it allows us to see human beings as self-interpreting beings, beings who do inhabit tradition, stories and conventions, even materiality, but also realise that these pre-existent forms of sense-making are scrutable and open to revision. The danger lies in assuming that one narrative appears as the essential narrative, 
This is why Haraway insists that there really is no core to knowledge. For core here, you can substitute any unifying concept from the philosophical tradition, for example, essence, usia, form, substance, self, object, God. Rather than object and properties, form and matter, unit and relations, Haraway's philosophy attempts to think things as relations. Their being is relationality. Haraway's relational rhetoric also has consequences for our technological self-understanding. Haraway wants to construct a feminist epistemology as well as a feminist techno-science. Remaking our self-understanding requires remaking the sciences, which in turn requires remaking sciences, applications and technology. Only by understanding technology as a site of material struggle can we fully comprehend how technology also is a process of constructing lives, bodies and identities in interaction with the world. The more traditional view of technology would be the one we see emerge from sociobiologists like Herdy, uh, Wilson, where technology is directly a form of engineering life in order to manage risk, threat and avoid hazard or augment genetic investment. We need a different way of constructing technologies. Technology needs to be attuned to reproducing ourselves in more meaningful ways, in ways which account for contingency, transformation, diversity, both biological and ontological. Technology in its patriarchal, Baconian guise, as in Francis Bacon, that is, man is the sovereign master and lord of nature, must be disrupted with a view of ourselves as co-creators rather than engineers of nature. This is the material semiotic analysis which Haraway sees as crucial to all human well-being and, most importantly, all particular human well-being. Here we can see why Haraway, despite her wariness of the term, contributes so much to post-human thinking. Technology as merely the reproductions of systems of control and domination, amplifies the oppressive binaries and dualisms of Western thought. Such binaries as mind-body, subject-object, male-female, us-them, sex and gender. This is what Haraway wants to overturn. This is why Haraway turns to the figure of the cyborg. The cyborg is not an abjuration of science, technology and engineering. The cyborg is Haraway's way of recasting our inevitable technological existence as more nuanced, specific and more palpably woven into the material world. The cyborg is a disruptive figure. And I don't mean disruptive in the same sense as the thoughtless innovations of corporate capitalism. I mean disruptive in an authentic sense as referring to that which enriches our existence through real meaningful novelty. Haraway's technological insight far from descending into Lyotard's pessimism, instead sees technology, once framed in an attentive way, can also be a site of resistance, contestation, as well as remaking of humanity in a constructive sense. This is the subject of Haraway's famous cyborg manifesto, and this is what we will turn to in our next lecture. The cyborg, as we will see, is not a robot, but the necessary condition of our coexistence. <laughs>